Welcome to Gracious Words. Gracious Words is taken from the weekly women's Bible study taught by Cheryl Broderson at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California. Life poses many questions to us. As Christians, we know that the ultimate questions in life can only be answered by Jesus. It's not only that Jesus gives us the answers, but He Himself is the answer to all of life's questions. part one of Cheryl's message titled, Jesus is the Answer. When I was a little girl, it wasn't unusual to come home and find my mom cleaning the house to the music of Andre Crouch. For some reason, that kind of R&B vibe always motivated her. And she loved Andre Crouch. In fact, I was introduced to the music of Andre Crouch as a little girl because my mother would play him on on our stereo, which used to be like, look like a dresser. Remember when stereos used to look like dressers? Some of you, others of you just go to an antique store. Maybe you'll find one. They're like four to six feet long. And they've got like a record player in the middle with a a lid that you lift up on hinges. And there is the record player. And you would, you, know, you would take that handle with the needle on the end and put it in. And in those days, they used to go around in a circle and they would play. But one of the songs that she used to listen to was Jesus is the Answer. And Andre Crouch would sing, Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him, there's no other. Jesus is the way. If you have some questions in the corners of your mind, traces of discouragement and peace you cannot find, reflections of your past seem to face you every day. But there's one thing I want you to know, that Jesus is the way. I know that you've got mountains that you think you cannot climb. I know your skies look so dark that you think the sun will never shine. But in case you don't know it, I tell you God's word is true. Everything that he's promised, I know that he will do it for you. Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him, there is no other. Jesus is the way. For those of you who have taught Sunday school, you know that no matter what the question you ask, where was Jesus born? Jesus. You know, just whatever the question is, they always answer Jesus. Because at the end of the day, the ultimate questions of life can only be answered by Jesus. But it's not only that Jesus gives us the answer, but he himself is the answer to all of life's questions. There's no question beyond his reach or understanding. Have you ever been stumped by a question? I have. I remember in, seventh, in second grade, 
one of my little Jewish friends came to me and said, Cheryl, can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? I was like, oh, no. You know, because if I say yes, then that means that God is limited and can't lift it. If I say no, then she'll say, well, then I don't believe. So I told her I'd get back to her. I asked my mom, and she just kept saying, Jesus can do anything. Jesus can do anything. And I was like, yes, but can he make a rock so big he can't lift it? I asked dad. And dad said, (laughs) that question's been around for a long time. But nothing resonated with me. Until years later, I read C.S. Lewis, and he said, nonsense is nonsense, no matter what context it is asked. Jesus is wisdom. He is wiser than the wisdom of man. Have you ever noticed that most people, like my little friend in second grade, don't ask questions for sincere reasons? They use questions as an excuse to condemn or entrap or justify their own position. They don't want to believe. So the questions are really a distraction from the real issue because they don't want to believe. But Jesus uses the questions of men, whether sincere or insincere, to reveal the pollution in the thought process, the purpose of life, true reality, and to call men to repentance. Do you have sincere questions? Jesus has the answer. In Romans eleven thirty three, Paul writes this, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Then again, Paul in Colossians 2, 3 tells us that in Jesus are hidden all the treasures, the complete treasures, the entirety of treasures of wisdom and knowledge. But Jesus is not only an answer giver, but he is the answer. James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. James 3.17, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. It's pure. It's available. It's accessible. You don't need to be afraid of any questions, sincere or insincere. Jesus will use both the sincere and insincere questions that you are asked to reveal the prejudice in the heart of men, to reveal the plans and purposes of God, to reveal that there is life after death and the reality of his person. In Luke 20, Jesus is met with a barrage of questions from his antagonists. They question his authority. They question his relationship with the Roman authorities. They question his authority about life after death. And even though these men mean these questions for evil to entrap Jesus, Jesus is not intimidated. In fact, Jesus never avoids the difficult or hard questions of life. Isn't that incredible? He doesn't run from it or go, oh no, there's the lady with a hard question. He's ready to answer, and he is the answer. As Jesus answers this barrage of questions, 
Those who are asking are the ones who become exposed, embarrassed, convicted, and corrected. We're told that those listening marvel at the answers of Jesus. Others are silenced at the answers of Jesus. Some even like his answer, and they say, you have answered well. Others are intimidated. Verse 40 tells us they dared not question him anymore. But the interesting thing is you cannot ask Jesus a question without getting a probing question in response. The antagonists of Jesus ask three questions, but Jesus asks seven questions that are recorded in Luke chapter 20. In verse 2, Jesus says, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? Now, their questions do not stump Jesus, but Jesus' questions stump them. Verse 15, therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Verse 17, what then is written? Verse 23, why do you test me? Verse 24, whose image and inscription does it have? Verse 41, how can they say that Christ is David's son? And verse 44, Jesus there, I'm sorry, David therefore calls him Lord. How is he then his son? You see, Jesus' questions reveal the bias of men, the rightful condemnation of men, the motivation of men, the purpose of men, the responsibility of men to recognize the Messiah, and the right interpretation of the scriptures. In verses 1 through 18, we have the authority of Jesus questioned. The chief priests, the scribes, together with the elders, confront Jesus as he is teaching in the temple courtyard. This would have been the temple courtyard that he had just cleansed, the one that he had driven out the money changers and the bazaars of Annas from. He has proclaimed it or claimed it as his father's house and a place for prayer, intercession for all nations. So they come to Jesus and they say, tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Or who is he who gave you this authority? Verse 2. What authority are they talking about? They're not just talking about the authority to cleanse the temple. They're talking about the authority of Jesus himself. Who made you a rabbi? What rabbinical school did you go to? Because in that day, every rabbi got his authority or his backing by... He went to Rabbi Harvard, or Rabbi Yale, or Rabbi USC. It was the rabbinic school, which in those days would have functioned like a college. And that was their authority for what they said. And in that authority, they never spoke what they had learned from God or from scripture, but only what they had learned from men. So they would quote Rabbi Hillel or Rabbi Shammai, but they would never say God said because they didn't believe that they had the authority to say what God said or even to use scripture, that they weren't worthy of quoting the scripture. They had to quote someone else interpreting the scripture. So who gave Jesus the authority? What? The authority to heal. Remember in 
John chapter 3, verse 2, Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He's a Pharisee. And he says, we've been watching you, the Pharisees. And we know that no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. We know that nobody can heal. Nobody has ever healed except for Elisha, Elijah, in the history of Israel. But you come and we know that healing is divine. No one ever healed diseases, delivered the demon-possessed, cleansed the lepers, gave sight to the blind, raised the dead, fed the multitude, calmed wind and waves. But Jesus did. He had the authority to heal men. To, he had authority over nature to calm the wind and the waves. But then... No one ever spoke like Jesus. In fact, we're told in John 7, 46, the chief priest sent the temple guards to arrest Jesus at the temple. And they came back without Jesus. And the chief priest said, why didn't you arrest him? And they said this, no one ever spoke like this man. Peter at one point said to Jesus, recorded in John 6, 68, Where else should we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Jesus spoke with authority. He had authority over nature. He could stand on the bow of the bow of the boat, the bow of the bow of the boat, or the bow with the bow of a boat. And he could say to to the violent waves and the vicious wind, Stop, be still. And his word, his voice was the only voice that could bring peace to nature. Only voice. He had authority over demons. His voice was so powerful that demons would beg him for mercy. His words although authoritative, were also gracious. Luke 4.22 tells us that they marveled at the gracious words which he spoke. But they were words also of eternal life. But not only, not only did Jesus have authority over disease and sickness, the elements of nature speak with authority. But no one ever lived with the authority of Jesus. He alone was absolutely righteous in all that he did. Wherever he went, you know, the high priest and the priest, if they touched something unclean, they became unclean. But if Jesus touched something unclean, the unclean became clean. He was the only man who could walk among sinners and not be defiled by sin. But tax collectors were restored to sons of Abraham. Sinful women had demons removed and became once again the daughters of Abraham. He lived absolutely righteously. And Jesus said in John, I always do those things which please the Father. Who else could make such a claim that they always, 24-7, thought thoughts that pleased the Father, spoke words that pleased God? 
lived and acted out in every gesture what pleased the father. Never lost his temper. He never went like this to a Roman chariot. Never went like this to one of the disciples. Never a wrong look. Never a wrong action. He was always compassionate, always merciful, always accessible to men, reachable, always gracious. How was it that Jesus could do such amazing things, speak with such a resting authority, live so righteously, and yes, have authority to cleanse the temple, which the high priest didn't have, which the priest didn't have, which the zealots didn't have. After Jesus' death, the zealots, um, this people called the Sacri, went through and tried to cleanse the temple, but they couldn't. But Jesus uses these questions to point out the prejudice in the heart of those asking about his authority. He answered their question with a question. In other words, he took authority over their question. Have you noticed that there is always something hidden behind every question? Every question has either a desire or a longing, a leading, a pain, a hurt, a prejudice, a justification, an excuse behind the question. There's always something hidden in a question. How often are our own questions laced with prejudice? Brian always catches my hidden motivation. When I asked him the other day, did you need this ball? He realized that what I was actually saying is, you let this out of the dishwasher when you could have put it inside. So you better have a darn good reason why it's sitting on my clean counter. He said to me, why do you test me? (laughs) The question, do you feel okay? Is actually the question or the motivation, you look sick. Why are you wearing your mascara on your cheekbones? Rabbis ask their questions to stimulate thought, to get at the heart or the root or the motivation. The the thing, the object, the agenda behind the question. What thoughts were in my mind that made me ask this? What pain was in my heart? What am I trying to justify? What am I feeling? What has happened to me that I'm looking for the answer? Jesus says to those asking, I will ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? The religious leaders could not answer this straightforwardly or honestly. In other words, they could not talk with any authority about authority. They couldn't authoritatively answer this question. Why? Because their thought processes, their rationale 
Their motivation behind everything was their own self-promotion and popularity. The religious leaders could not answer it straightforwardly or honestly. Their answer was predicated on the reaction of the crowd. They were afraid to say that John's baptism was of men because the crowd knew he was a prophet. They recognized John as a prophet. In Luke 1, 65 through 66, after the, the birth of John, we're told that those things that happened were noised about Judea. In other words, John's birth, how Zechariah had been in the temple at the hour of prayer and been struck dumb or unable to speak by the, the angel and come out and not been able to say anything until John was, the, was born, John the Baptist was born. The fact that his mother and his father were so aged, the fact that his father was a priest, all these things were talked about all over Judea. And we're told that all of Judea had their eyes on John from the moment of his birth. When his father wrote, his name is John, and all of a sudden his tongue was loosed. And he began to praise the Lord and prophesy over his son. Everyone was watching John the Baptist. What would become of John the Baptist? They could see God's hand on John, even from his inception and conception. And so they watched. They listened to John. We're told that multitudes went out to the Judean wilderness, out of Jerusalem, out of the cities of Israel to be baptized with, by John. But we're told that John preached and said, there is one who is among you even now, who's going forth is before me, but he is after me. And I'm not even worthy to stoop and tie the laces of his sandal. And when he saw Jesus, he pointed him out and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, Jesus. We're told that two of John's disciples, at least two of John's disciples, John, who wrote the Gospel of John, Andrew, who was Peter's brother, had been John the Baptist's disciples. But when John introduced Jesus as the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, they immediately began to follow Jesus. John chapter 1. John also said, I didn't know who he was, but the Spirit had told me I would recognize him. And when John baptized Jesus, the heaven was opened and God announced from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And John saw the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus like a dove. And he knew, he knew the one he had believed in the Lamb of God, the one who would bring the axe to the root of the tree of Israel that chopped down everything that they were trusting in, the one who is truly righteous, who would remove the sin of the world. They were afraid to say that John's baptism was of man because the people had been observing John. 
Also, John the Baptist was considered a martyr because he was killed by Herod. He had also been of the priestly line. His father had been a priest. Yet the religious leaders could not say that his baptism or the right to baptize was from God because then they would have to admit that he was a prophet and spoke God's word. And John had pointed to Jesus. Again, John 1.29, behold the Lamb of God. The religious leaders refused to answer Jesus. Verse 7, they refused to dignify Jesus' question with an answer. Their answer was not one of ignorance. It was of outrage and dishonesty. They couldn't answer Jesus without implicating themselves in one way or another. Jesus never avoids the hard questions of life. So often he was confronted and questioned by his adversaries, yet he remained composed and unmoved. Quite often these encounters were to entrap Jesus, but he used these situations, sincere or not, to expose the intentions of their hearts and to reveal the truth that it may lead them to repentance. The same is true for our questions today. Jesus welcomes our questions that he may show us his truth. We hope you have been blessed by today's Bible study. For more information about the Gracious Words radio program and the teaching ministry of Cheryl Broderson, please visit our website at graciouswords.com. Coming up next time on the Gracious Words program, we'll look at how Jesus is the answer as we continue our Jesus Magnified study in the Gospel of Luke with Cheryl Broderson. We do hope you make plans to join us. Again, for more information, please visit our website at graciouswords.com. This program is sponsored by Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.